I've chosen as the opening subject for this session the unknown and forgotten God. I was just saying to the deacons a few minutes ago, I can't be sure that I was wise in making this the first one. I can tell you this, I chose it because I think it is probably the most needed of any subject. But maybe it wasn't uh, strategically right, because I think psychologically, uh, maybe we should choose a subject for which there's such widespread interest that we get a lot here the first night, and then we try to hold the crowd and that sort of thing. What I did, and instead of doing that, I chose what I think you need. Now, of the subjects that come up this autumn, uh, many uh, have followed suggestions that have come from you, and I listen to you, I listen carefully to you. But I've got to admit, this one is my own, and uh, it is where I am, it's what I believe. I think if there is anything that characterizes the modern church, it is an absence of God-centeredness. Everything is man-centered. What's in it for me? What will it do for me? What will it do for me? What will it do for me? And I just wanted to start out this time with a perspective that I think is absolutely necessary for the modern church. And I think preaching should be God-centered. Worship should be God-centered. All right. We take our cue from a verse in Acts 17.23, where Paul addressed a group of pagan philosophers on the Areopagus, and he just noticed this inscription to an unknown God, and he took his text from that and took advantage of that moment to unveil the true God. And you'll see that in Acts 17, verses 24 to 31. There is sadly a sense in which this is needed in the church today. When Paul said that, he wasn't referring to the church. He was talking about heathens. He was talking about those who didn't know anything, anything, anything. And yet, believe it or not, I think there's a sense in which this is the need of the hour in the church. Perhaps the least known subject in the church today is God himself. Now, there's a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the effects of the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of emphasis upon worship and experience. All of these have their place, and we will touch on these again and again. But I ask tonight the question, what do we know about God? What do you know about God, the God of the Bible? And it happens that the God of the Old Testament is largely the unknown and forgotten God. Many people think because they read their New Testament, they're getting everything. You are incomplete in your understanding of the Bible if you ignore the Old Testament. If you ignore the Old Testament, there is a defect, a deficiency in your thinking. And the God of the New Testament, to be honest, is really not much better known. People today, generally speaking, do not know their Bibles. There was a day in which the average layman, you could just start a verse, quote it, and the average layman could finish it. But scripture memorization today has almost perished from the earth. All right, why do this on our first evening? 
under the heading of theology? Well, because there are basically two ways of doing theology. The first is from man's point of view, from man's point of view, and that's the common approach today. As I just said, we've all been influenced by the me generation and the what's in it for me era. We naturally assume that this is the way to approach God in the study of theology. And I happen to think most theology done today could more aptly be, be called anthropology. The word anthropology refers to the study of man. And so much theology is done that is man-centered, man-centered. Well, theology that assumes that man must be at its center is not pure theology at all. But there's a second way, a second way of doing theology, and that is from God's point of view. That means that we begin and end with God and see things through his eyes. When we look at God through our eyes, we feel qualified to ask such questions as, how could the God of the Bible do this or that? And we, we feel that God owes us an explanation. And, uh, the, for example, the very idea that hell is repugnant to us is because we don't look at it from God's point of view. We always look at it from our point of view. And we just should ask the question, what if, what if, from God's point of view, there is a different way of looking at things. Now, I have had the feeling for a long time, were the Holy Spirit to come down in great power, great power, a perspective would come to us that would be so dazzling that we'd be thinking, I'd never seen it this way before. I just never dreamed of thinking like that. But we're so far removed from God-centeredness. From God's point of view, man does not deserve the explanation that we think is coming to us. We're so sure, well, if there's a God, I want him to answer this question for me. From man's point of view, God has a lot to answer for and a lot of explaining to do. A number of years ago, a prominent preacher in Louisville, Kentucky, who had gone through a tragedy, he lost his own young daughter. And uh, he was very bitter about it. And he kept saying one thing. And it, it just spread right through his congregation. And they all believed it. They all believed it. Namely this, that God has a lot to answer for. God has a lot to answer for. Well, this is what I mean by man-centeredness. As if he owes us an explanation. And once we begin to get into the wavelength of the Holy Spirit will be like Job. Do you know, at the end of the book of Job, that long book, and it seems at times a bit boring, and you think, what is it all for? But at the very end, at the very end, you know what Job did? He said, I put my hand on my mouth. He just didn't realize. And this is what needs to happen, and I wish we could have just a taste of this, and, and without sounding too pious, I've been praying today, been praying today that maybe the Lord would just 
apply this word in such a way that that his spirit would would make it come alive and you have that feeling that where your heart burns within you and you, you begin to think this is different i've never seen it like this before and it's because god makes it happen and so i want you to know that from god's point of view man is the one who has a lot to answer for and a lot of explaining to do well now if up to now <laughs> you are offended if up to now you are offended and you know i don't like to offend people those who know me best know that perhaps my greatest weakness is that i want to be a pleaser man if i were to be honest this is embarrassingly honest if you really know i i just don't want to offend but i'm going to tell you now if you've been offended by what i've just said then it shows how far we are removed from the atmosphere displayed in the bible when god is showing himself and yet there were similar eras in biblical history it is summed up in the book of judges everyone did as he saw fit as the authorized version put it everyone did what was right in his own eyes dr lloyd jones used to say before he died we're in the book of judges today this is the generation we're in everyone does what is right in his own eyes and were god to turn up in power the whole church would have to shift gears quickly and i wouldn't be surprised if the gears would be stripped at once but all would see why god is described in the bible as awesome as the authorized version puts it terrible terrible well this is the day in which we want to make god look good this is a day in which we have the feeling well people you know need to see that god isn't so bad that god isn't so bad our job really is just to portray god as he is and that's what i want to do tonight well this study is preparation for what is coming and you know what is coming and i really believe this a genuine awakening a genuine awakening possibly sooner than any of us thinks and it will be the unveiling of the true god he will be alien to so many and they find out what he's like and you may well expect people to hate and despise him the god that unconverted and lukewarm church members think they can get on with is not god at all because you need to know that god is man's natural enemy as much as man is god's natural enemy that's what jonathan edwards said and you say well i never heard of such in all my life that god is my natural enemy oh yes if it once you understand what god is really like unconverted unregenerate you hate him you hate him and i know what it is to have people to say i hate that god and i think well they're beginning to see just who god is but what we've done in our generation to try to make him look good try to make him look good uh he's referred to as the man upstairs he's referred to as is the one who he's just great we 
we just think he's, he's terrific, you know. No sense of awe with regard to the true God. Well, this study will attempt to unveil the God who will be revealed in days to come. And those who take on board this teaching, I sincerely believe, will be best prepared for what is coming. I also believe they will be the best equipped and will be among God's sovereign vessels. I happen to think that one of the reasons God raised up this school of theology, this is our fourth year, doesn't seem possible, we've had three years of this, this is our fourth year, and I think God is bringing in key people like you from all over London who will turn out to be sovereign vessels, you're going to be used in a way you never thought possible. And one of the key verses for our school of theology is John 14, 26. John 14, 26, where Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will remind you of what you've learned. The Holy Spirit will remind you of what is there. And you see, the school of theology isn't exactly what turns on a lot of people. And you think, what's the use? Why memorize scripture? There's no great inspiration in memorizing scripture. A lot easier to watch television or read a newspaper than it is to memorize scripture. Why sit through something like this? Because you've got to concentrate and you think it's not always inspirational. I try, I try to make it as inspirational as I can. But what's the point? Well, I'll tell you. When the Spirit comes down, you may leave here tonight and think, I wish I could remember all of this. I'm not sure I can remember it. But Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will remind you. He will remind you. And there will be that tactical moment, that strategic moment, when all of a sudden the Lord brings something to your mind. You think, ah, oh, this is wonderful. Because you took the time to learn. And he will apply it. You see, if you are empty-headed before you're spirit-filled, you'll be empty-headed afterwards. And it may be that you want to be filled with the Spirit. But if there's nothing there to be reminded of, the Spirit comes down on you, what are you going to do? And so those who have in this time of preparation, while we wait for that day, you'll be the ones, you'll be the ones that God will sovereignly use. And this lesson is a taste of, of what the Holy Spirit will use. But for that matter, all our lessons, we, we believe are what must be said in our day. Well, now, why is this lesson important? Well, it's a bit of a repeat of what I said, but let me summarize it in five ways. First, most Christians today don't know their Bibles, especially the Old Testament. Second, many Christians think the Old Testament God is different from the one depicted in the New Testament. Wrong. Third, many Christians do not know much theology, much less what is truly God-centered theology. Fourth, the time is long overdue to remedy this. And fifth, nothing is so edifying or God-honoring as the unveiling of God himself. Do you know, when I hear a sermon, I don't get to hear much preaching, there's nothing I enjoy more than what is God-centered. It just edifies me. It just blesses me. And I hope that will be the case tonight. Well, the first thing now in this connection is to show you 
We're talking about the God who is jealous for his own glory. I will not ask for a show of hands. I will not ask for a show of hands. How many of you find this unusual or new? Never heard of it before? But this is the first thing I want to say. What is unknown today, what is forgotten, it's this. We're talking about the God who is jealous for his own glory. I know people who want to say, yuck, whatever kind of God is that who is jealous for his own glory? I answer, the God of the Bible, the true God, your creator, the God who sent his one and only son into this world, Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on the cross for our sins. This God is jealous for his glory. His very name is jealous. And yet jealousy in fallen man is one of the most unattractive traits. It's what leads to murder. It leads to the demonic taking over. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 18. From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house. When David was playing the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, and saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Just letting you see, in fallen man, in fallen man, jealousy will lead to the demonic taking over. Be careful. If you find in yourself a jealous spirit, it's a very dangerous thing. It is what lay behind the enemies of Christ. Did you know, it says that, that Pilate knew that Jesus had been delivered up because of envy. It's what lay behind the enemies of the church. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with envy. All right, it's the same jealousy now in fallen man that makes us hate God. You know why? We're jealous of his glory. We're jealous of his glory. It's one thing to be jealous of people who excel or make money or get famous. But when it comes to God, are you that way, that way, with regard to him as well? You see, you should instead recognize that this is the true God. And you love him being just like he is. I suppose what uh, a wife would rather hear from her husband than anything, or what a husband would rather hear from his wife, are these words, I love you just like you are. Just like you are. Charlie, say that to you lately? If I said that to you lately, <laughs> remind me tonight to say that. <laughs> she will. <laughs> but the greatest respect you can give to God is when you see this about Him and just love Him for being like that. We, by nature, are jealous of his glory. We hate a God who is depicted as he is in the Bible. How dare God be like that, the natural man says. We're naturally hostile to a God like that. Now, before the fall, 
in the Garden of Eden, being created in God's image, we were devoted to God just like he is. But after the fall, and, and we're all the result of the fall, after the fall, the capacity for jealousy in us became so corrupted that instead of loving God's glory, we resented it. And let me tell you who hates God's glory the most, and that is the devil and his angels. Fallen angels, they hate the glory of God so that if you, because of you're already having the jealous streak and you resent the God of glory, the fallen angel, the devil will play into that feeling and create even a greater hostility toward God. But conversion to Christ results in seeing God's glory and loving it. Conversion results in seeing God's glory and loving it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Until then we are blind to it, blind by the God of this world. You see, Satan was jealous of God's glory. We do not understand what is the origin of evil. Nobody understands the origin of evil. The nearest you get, the nearest you get is that passage in Isaiah chapter 14 where Lucifer, son of the morning, said, I'll be like God, and he exalted himself, and, and he was jealous of God's glory. So that the devil's hatred of God's glory is mirrored by man's similar feelings. So if anyone, whether he professes to be a Christian or not, finds himself disgusted with the God of the Bible, I have to say it shows that his heart has not been broken. The true Spirit of God has not revealed the true God to him. So the unconverted man will settle for any God but the God of the Bible. Unconverted man wants God to be what he thinks God ought to be. He wants God to be what he thinks God ought to be. Who's that? A God that we can control. A God who won't punish. A God who doesn't have a mind of his own. And yet, what Paul described in Romans 1 was that man wanted to worship himself and the result is that God gave man up to a depraved mind. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes that God would send a delusion and that people would believe a lie and be damned because they receive not the love of the truth. Listen to me. The most important quality you've got, if I might put it that way, the most important thing you need to guard is a love for the truth. A love for the truth, that you will follow the truth wherever it leads you. Follow the truth wherever it leads you. The reason some believed a lie, the reason God sent strong delusion, is that they did not receive the love of the truth. And so that's the key thing. Keep that in your heart. Above all else, a love for the truth, and you follow it wherever it leads you. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. God is unashamedly 
jealous. We're on page five at letter B in the middle of the page. Let's all say it together. Exodus chapter 20, verse five. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He will not stand for his people worshiping anything else or anyone else but him. He just can't cope with it. He cannot cope with it. Everybody together, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23, 24. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. One more time, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. So here are examples to prove this. He punishes even those who are called by his name. You may think, well, I go to church and he must be very proud of me. You've been baptized. He must be very proud of me. I call myself a Christian. Well, that ought to count for something. I want you to know that God doesn't play favorites. And you can be a professing Christian. You can be a genuine Christian. A genuine Christian. And he will still deal with you. This is what happened to Achan. In Joshua chapter 7, King Saul lost his anointing for not obeying totally. Even Moses, even Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. The children of Israel died in the wilderness. All right, why is God jealous? He is jealous because he is a God of glory. The glory of God is the sum total of all his attributes. And on page six, uh, we have a list of all of his attributes. And something you can remember when you think of all the things you can say about God, and we're going to go through them rather quickly, but his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his wisdom, his love, and you come up with all of them. And you look for one word, one word that says it all. Is there, is, there, is there one word that will say all of these attributes? And that is yes. The answer is his glory. The glory of God is the sum total of all his attributes. The word attributes means characteristics or qualities of a person. So when we refer to the attributes of God, we refer to his omnipotence. It means he is all-powerful. His omniscience, he is all-wise, he knows everything. His omnipresence, he is everywhere. There's no place where God isn't. You may have come to London running from God. You may go on the other side of the globe running from God. The psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Jonah thought he could run from God. 
but he found he couldn't do it. He's everywhere. His holiness, referring to his purity, his being wholly other, completely different than anything created. His justice, that means he is righteous, he must punish sin. His mercy, which means he doesn't want to punish us. His wrath is his anger toward sin. His love is overlooking sin by sending his son. Well, take all of these, and there are others. There are other words we could have added to the list. The one word, the one word that says all of the above, his glory. It comes from a Hebrew word that is pronounced kabod, kabod. It literally means heaviness or weightiness, heaviness or weightiness. I was talking to a church leader uh, three or four months ago. Interesting thing he told me. I won't tell you who he is, who he is but he's, he's well known. And uh, he had been opposed to what they call the Toronto Blessing. He'd been opposed to it. Very suspicious of it. He didn't want to miss anything God was in, but he just didn't really believe it was of God. Until he said... He allowed two people, maybe two or three, that he believed in to pray for him. And he said, as they prayed, he immediately thought of this Hebrew word kabod. He said the weight on him, the weight just brought him right to the floor. The weight, the weight. And he changed his mind. He changed his mind. You see, why would people fall down when they're prayed for? Well, it's, it's just a little drop in the bucket, but God can just show his glory, his weight. And his weight, and they can't stand up. I heard someone say, he said, he said, he asked the Lord, why is it people fall down? And said, the Lord replied, because they can't stand up. Well, the weight, the weight. And that's our word. In the New Testament, it's a Greek word. Doxa, you've heard of the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It means praise and honor. Uh, and you might be interested to know that the Greek word doxa comes from a root word that means opinion. I don't have that in the notes, but you might want to write it down. So at the end of the day, God's glory is his opinion. His opinion. That's really what it comes to. The question is, do you show praise for his opinion? So you want his honor and glory. Then you, every decision you make, you should seek God's opinion. Do you know that God has an opinion what you ought to do with your life? God has an opinion about everything. He's got an opinion. Do you bother to ask him? Do you bother to ask him what it is? And if you want his glory, you say, well, Lord, I want your opinion. And if he gives it to you, follow it. The glory of God is the nearest you get to his essence. By nature, then, God is glory. It is his brilliance and his light in him. There is no darkness at all. It is his sovereign will. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. 
And that makes you realize you can't just snap your finger at God and say, God, here I am, that you're proud to see me. As if God is going to say, oh, I'm so excited to have you talking to me. And you see, there are people who, because they have the praise of man, they're well known, they're upmarket, they have influence, well connected. And when they tip their hat to God, they expect God to get so excited. Listen, he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That means that God can pass some people by and never apologize for it. How many of you have heard the hymn, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior? How many of you heard that? The lady who wrote that hymn was speaking to a prison, prisoners one Sunday afternoon. And she was making this very point, that God, you know, saves whom he will, will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. And as she spoke, there was such power that one prisoner cried out, Oh, Lord, don't pass by me. And she went home and wrote the words, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. You see, this generation feels that they can just snap their finger and God's going to come. You see, God can pass this all by. He doesn't have to apologize for that. When Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, July 1741, which the printer gave as a title to the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When Edwards finished preaching, strong men were holding on to church pews to keep from slipping into hell. They were seen outside putting their arms around tree trunks, holding on. And all they could do is ask God for mercy. Have you ever heard of anybody doing that lately? We've given the idea that we're doing God a favor if we talk to him. The God of the Bible does us a singular favor by even looking in our direction. We're talking about the glory of God. And when he unveils himself or manifests himself, it will be a seeing of his glory. It is the greatest thing we can aspire to see. Now, next week, we're going to talk about manifestations of his glory. Manifestations of his glory. Moses said, I beseech you, show me your glory. When you begin to pray like that, you're getting close. You're getting close to the heart of God. It's the greatest motive we can wish for, that you just want his honor. Jesus said in John 5, 44, How can you believe? How can you believe who seek honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from the only God? God will not share his glory with another. That is, surrender it by letting a human being be worshipped. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another. 
The worst mistake any person can make is to touch God's glory, that is, take credit for what is God's. You see, this is what happened uh, in the day of King Herod. Listen to these words at the end of Acts chapter uh, 12. It says that uh, they, they shouted of Herod, this is the voice of God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Don't ever compete with God's glory and don't be a fool and take glory to yourself. So will any of us who could be so foolish find ourselves as did Herod? It's only a matter of time. The only person, the only person to have it passed on to him without measure is Jesus Christ. God gave to Jesus the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father. We must bend the knee to him. We must seek his glory above all else. Admittedly, the desire for earthly glory may accomplish many things. Uh, that is, uh, man's envy of his neighbor is what gets things done in this world. Ecclesiastes 4.4 4 says so. But if you have uh, a double dose of ambition, and I suppose there are some ambitious people here tonight. Uh, I'm like that. I have to tell you. You know, I was saying to Brian before we came out here. How many of you remember John McEnroe on the tennis court? We used to get so angry with him. You see, he, he was driven. He was driven by his military father, who was a sergeant. He started playing tennis when he was a little boy, and his father just drove him and drove him and drove him and drove him. So he became such a perfectionist. And if the ball was just one inch off, he'd get so angry. He couldn't, you know, he, he, it was all... You know, I, have to, I identify with that a bit. I identify with that. My father was a bit like that. My father was a bit like that. And maybe you know what it is to have great ambition. And what I have sought to do is I come, you know, I just had my 60th birthday in July, and, and, and it's sobering. I think what years I've got left, and I think of all the ambition I've had, I just would like, by God's help, to channel that ambition in one direction, that I want nothing but the honor of God, whatever brings him glory, and I, I want his well done, his well done, his well done. And if you know what it is like to, to, to be afflicted, I mean, it can be a blessing, but it can also be an affliction with ambition. Channel that, channel that, so that you want only the honor that comes from him. All right, just before we take a break, let me say there is no discontinuity, no break, no change between the God of the Old Testament and the God revealed in Christ. It is the same God. It is the same God. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord. I change not. 
Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you ever feel a need to apologize for the God of the Old Testament, I just want you to remember that Jesus never did. Jesus never did. You say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I like Jesus. Well, just a minute. Jesus regarded the God of the Old Testament as his father. He never apologized for the God of the Old Testament, nor should we ever. He is Jesus' father, and to see Jesus is to see this same God. All right, we will take just a few minutes break. Come back in a minute. The second thing we see this evening, we're talking about the God whose word has priority over his name. This may be entirely new to you. It's only in recent years I've come to see it myself. Although when you look at it in scripture, you think, well, it's obviously true. You see, the word of God was revealed long before he revealed his name. We had access to his word. We heard his word in scripture. Again and again, it was his word. But we knew nothing of his name. The word of God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. And there was light. That was his word. In creating all that is, God merely spoke with the word let. And it happened. The word of God was the basis of his revealing himself. Adam and Eve heard the sound, the voice of the Lord God in the garden. It was always a case of God speaking. In other words, his word. So with regard to Cain, to Noah, the word of God was the way God manifested himself to the patriarchs. The patriarchs, the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. It may have been through a vision, a dream, or an angel, but it was always the word, always the word that was communicated. Do you know it wasn't until thousands of years later the name of God was revealed to Moses. So that's 1300 B.C. approximately. And this came in response to the request of Moses. He asked, what is his name? What is his name? And God revealed himself to Moses and identified himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God ordered Moses, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. It was then that Moses replied, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And the reply came, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Let's say together now this verse, Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And many of you will already know that the Lord is the Hebrew of Yahweh. So if you translate Yahweh uh, into English, it comes out the Lord. Now, uh, Orthodox Jews will not pronounce the name Yahweh, but it's only a superstition. There's nothing at all, nothing at all in the Old Testament says you shouldn't pronounce his name. Uh, they just think they're going to impress God and, and show respect, but it, it's, it's really a superstition. Uh, the name Yahweh. Uh, when they come to Yahweh, they say Adonai, Adonai. That's, that also means Lord. They can pronounce Adonai, but not Yahweh. But they really could Yahweh. It's just that they, it's a tradition, not founded in Scripture at all. In any case, Yahweh was the name of God, and it means I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. And then came this most extraordinary statement. And I wonder if you've read it and wondered about it. And you think, well, that's interesting. But listen, all together now, Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, I want you to think about it. It shows that the unveiling of God's name was withheld for hundreds of years, even though God made a covenant with the patriarchs. Even though God made a covenant with the patriarchs. He never revealed his name. So, what had he revealed? His word. His word. So the word had priority over his name. The word came first. And to this very day, the word has priority because we are saved by the hearing of the word. The word was the primary instrument of revelation. And yet there's an interesting thing we see here. The unveiling of God's name was paralleled by a new phenomenon or phenomena, signs and wonders. This is very interesting. People have asked me, you know, was there no sign or wonder before uh, we get to Exodus, the book of Exodus? And I think you'd have to look pretty hard for anything like that. What you do have is the miraculous birth of Isaac. But other than uh, Sarah conceiving uh, at an old age, uh, the, the idea of signs and wonders just didn't come along until God revealed his name. And so there's a connection between the name of God and signs and wonders. They began with the burning bush when one day Moses got up, saw a bush on fire, and the bush didn't burn up. The flame just kept going, and the bush stayed the same. And he said, I'm going to see what this is. And so he walked over to it and got so close and God said, stop, stop, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And that was the first sign or wonder, the burning bush. And that was just the beginning 
of an era that will be characterized with extraordinary things. For example, Moses' rod becoming a snake. And then came the ten plagues in Egypt. And the culmination was the most, two most extraordinary ones of the Old Testament. The Passover, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land. And so there's the culmination of signs, wonders, extraordinary things. All right. The priority of the word over the name is also seen in the New Testament. The second person of the Godhead was revealed as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It did not say, in the beginning was the name. It didn't say that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, Logos, was chosen as the description of Jesus before he was born. So the Word was in the beginning with God, for he was God. All right. When the gospel was given its fuller outline, for example, in the book of Romans, Paul summed up how to be saved. Everybody together, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. And this is the way God had revealed himself to Abraham, who was justified by faith alone. Now, I, for one, long to see uh, an unveiling of signs and wonders. I uh, tell you right now, we want it, or them, we want to see it. Uh, you can't engineer that sort of thing. If it's a real uh, work of God, a miracle, a healing, anything supernatural, uh, we'd like to see it here. I don't mind admitting that to you. But you need to know that people are not saved by that. Signs and wonders, signs and wonders, it's not the way people are converted. You know how they're converted? It's the Word. It's the Word. God chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And whenever signs and wonders push the word to one side, whenever signs and wonders just put preaching to one side, it bothers me a little bit. It, it worries me a little bit that, that there's an appetite for the extraordinary. And people just, uh, you know, want to get through the preaching to get on with the really good stuff. It's like some people uh, who like sweets, they just endure the entree, or the hors d'oeuvres, but they want the, the, the dessert, and that's what they really want. Well, I think we have a generation like that. But you need to know, if you want to get next to the heart of God, what is paramount, what is priority, is his word. Think about it. I think it has implications at the present time. And uh, we'll talk next week a little bit about the Toronto blessing, and I, I affirm it, I affirm it. But I tell you right now, it's got to develop into more before we see this awakening we're talking about. All it has done so far is excite a few people, got some news reports, secular newspaper, but has there been a fear of God on London? No.
So a long way to go. And so the point I want to make is that it's the word that matters. It, this is what has priority. All right. God revealed himself to Abraham, who was justified by faith alone. This is what's got to happen to people. They've got to be justified by faith. That means that you're not saved by your works, but you trust what Jesus did for you on the cross. And the account of Abraham believing became Paul's chief illustration of the doctrine of justification by faith. And the gospel is conveyed by preaching. We have two verses here, and I'd really appreciate it if everybody together. First, 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And Titus 1.3. At his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So, signs and wonders come and go. They come and go. And I want them to come. I don't want them to go. I want them to come. I pray for them. But remember, what has priority is the word. And the phenomena of Pentecost made room for the word. There were extraordinary signs and wonders when the Spirit came down. The violent wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in other tongues. And Peter pointed to these only to bring in two things, both of which related to the preaching of the word. First, how it fit with the Old Testament. And second, the preaching of the gospel, the reason for Jesus' death and resurrection and its mandate. And so, you see, when signs and wonders were present in the New Testament, they didn't focus on them. They used the occasion to preach the gospel. And so God would use signs and wonders to get the attention of the people. But Peter says, all right, now let me tell you how this happened. And he would preach the gospel. Peter pointed to those only to bring in two things, therefore, what related to the preaching of the word. The first great miracle was the occasion to preach the gospel in Acts 3. And how interesting, the name, the name of Jesus was the only explanation for the miracle. So you can see how the name of God is paralleled by signs and wonders. And so let's say together, Acts 3.16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. And this, therefore, mirrored the phenomena in Moses' day. And so it's the word that saves us but when God is revealed, uh, is pleased to reveal his name and show the wonder that comes from his name, then you see the phenomena. And so the name of Jesus was held high because of signs and wonders. Uh, you may say, well, why do you want to see them? If, 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 if the word is what matters, uh, uh, what does it matter? Well, I'll tell you why. First of all, in our church, we've got a lot of sick people. There are people that are in pain, some suffering. 
And uh, I just think if Jesus walked into their house, he, he would heal them. So I like to see people healed. I know of the comfort that the prophetic word can give to people. I know what it is to get comfort from a prophetic word and, and have a word that is so direct that you know only God could say that. And that's comforting. And I could go on and on. But there's another reason. You see, signs and wonders, though it doesn't save, God could use to give credibility to the message. Credibility to the message. And so, what I'm calling for tonight is not dismissing signs and wonders, the opposite. But we get our priorities right. We get them right. And the word has priority. That's the way people are converted. And so if God is pleased to manifest his glory in terms of signs and wonders, which we will talk about next week, we must never forget, never forget, never forget the priority of the word. And I just pray that God will trust us with this one day, maybe soon. And we may have to demonstrate that we will not let anything upstage the word. Nothing should upstage the word. The phenomena of signs and wonders was the occasion by which the word was preached even more. And I do pray daily, I literally pray daily for signs and wonders. As long as when they come, the word is even more exalted. Even more exalted instead of it being put to one side. So the phenomena of signs and wonders that paralleled the power of the name of Jesus was eclipsed by the gospel. Peter used the occasion to preach and the result of preaching was conversions. The phenomena of signs and wonders were never pointed to as the end in themselves. The word was always magnified above the name. And here is a verse that has mystified many, many people. Psalm 138, verse 2. And I have to tell you, there's only one version that got it right. And that's the authorized version. The authorized version. It says, Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. All the other versions, they looked at that and they thought, that can't be true. That can't be true. And so these translators thought they knew more uh, than the psalmist. And so they, you can read it. If you want to look it up in the NIV, don't do it now. You can wait till you get home. But you'll see it's not clear at all. The only modern version that even bothered to put a footnote is the Living Bible. People sometimes don't have a lot of respect for the Living Bible. I personally love it and, and, and read it a lot. The Living Bible has a little footnote that says, literally, you have magnified your word above all your name. That's exactly what the Hebrew says. Well, what I've shown tonight is this, that the God of the Bible is jealous for his glory, and the God of the Bible has made his word to have priority over his own name. And I hope you can see the parallel and how all this connects with the word is the way we are saved. But sometimes God will unveil his name and the power of his name and do the miraculous. 
as he did with Moses, as he did in the book of Acts. But let's not ever get to the place that we say, well, I'm just a word man. I'm just a word man. And that's what matters. Remember, God does care about his name. Just because I say, or because he says, that the word is magnified above his name, doesn't mean that we, that they're in competition with each other. We should want both simultaneously. You see, what is sad, I think, we all know this, that generally speaking, there, there is a division in the church, not a hostile division, it just happens to be. Uh, churches where uh, signs and wonders are, are emphasized and are expected, and uh, this is what people largely go for. Uh, they go to see something. And then there are those where the emphasis is upon the word, and that's where we are here. And so when they come to Westminster Chapel, they don't expect to see a lot. They expect to hear. They expect to hear. Do you see how long for a day when those who go to see will hear, and those who come to hear will see? This is what we should want. Well, we conclude. There is no discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word discontinuity means a break in a continuous state. Some think the Old Testament put an end to the God revealed in it. Wrong. The same God, the same God who spoke to the fathers by the prophets, spoke by his Son. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. So the New Testament continues the same truth about God. It's often put like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Well, I close. What are we to learn from this? First, our God is the God of glory. The God of glory. That's the way Stephen referred to God at the beginning of his defense before the Sanhedrin. He referred to God as the God of glory. And do you know, in the end, the glory of God was manifested. Everybody together, this great verse, Acts 7.55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So perhaps if all of us will be enamored and thrilled with the God of glory, the God of glory, maybe he'll be pleased to manifest his glory. The principles of the glory of God are unveiled in Jesus' teachings. For example, and here is a practical side that is very sobering. Judging another is an act of self-righteousness which is transferring ourselves to ourselves, transferring to ourselves God's prerogative to judge. Let me say it again. Judging another is an act of self-righteousness which is transferring to ourselves God's prerogative to judge. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. One must never, never, never do this. Judging another is touching God's glory. Vindicating ourselves is the same thing. God promises to vindicate. 
When we do it ourselves, it's touching the glory. Therefore, we are to be merciful just as our Father in heaven is merciful. However much we may desire to see undoubted signs and wonders, and I do, we must never forget God's own priority. Manifestations are never to be sought as an end in themselves. The gospel which comes through preaching is the heart of God. Next week, the manifestations of God's glory. All right, your turn, your turn. We have microphones positioned in both aisles. It's up to you now. We've got ten minutes. Ask anything, whatever wasn't clear or what you want elaborated on. Speak now or else forever hold your peace. Here comes one. Let's fill up both aisles because when 8.30 comes, we quit no matter how many are there. Come ahead, brother. Um, if judging another is an act of self-righteousness, where do magistrates and the system of law in this country fit in? Please? That's different. That comes into the realm of common grace, uh, where we have to have law. Uh, judging another is, is, is where a Christian judges another person's motive. Uh, this would not be a word that would do away with the magistrate at all. But if I judge you by the color of your shirt, or by your accent, or by something I've heard about you. That's where I would be wrong. All right, thank you. Come ahead. Um, from the Christian perspective, at first sight there seems to be a conflict between what you've talked about this evening to the view of uh, calling out Abba Father and the relationship of father and child. Well, did you want to say a word about that? Well, I couldn't cover everything in one go. Uh, but... Uh, you could call it an antinomy. It's a word that means parallel principles that are irreconcilable but both true. How God is transcendent, he's sovereign, is great, and yet by his spirit we have that intimate relationship where we say Abba, Father, and the word Abba is the Aramaic equivalent of saying Daddy. Uh, I just couldn't bring out everything in one lesson. Right, thank you. Okay, come ahead, dear. Dr. Kendall, this B.C. and A.D. is not that important with regard to the old dispensation. Uh, John the Baptist died as a believer before Jesus and is described as the least in heaven. Is there not something very great in the in the veil being torn from the top to the bottom in how God views us. There's the conditional oath you've preached on and now it's, it's different, is it not? Um, okay, thank you very much. Uh, as I understand your question, certainly the BCAD just shows uh, how we date history and the whole world acknowledges that. Uh, and uh, dispensation is not a bad word in this case. Uh, it just means a time when God reveals himself in a particular manner. Uh, and until Christ came, it was through the prophets and now through the Son. 
Uh, John the Baptist didn't die before Jesus. He was, he was still alive. He, he died before Jesus died. And Jesus uh, referred to John the Baptist as the greatest uh, of the prophets. And yet he is, that is in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. But I think I should comment on that when we've got time to deal with the whole question. Thank you. All right. Can I come back on the first question and just say that magistrates, judges, juries do not sit in moral judgment. They judge purely against the law. This is uh, a problem which all Christian magistrates and Christians on juries have to confront. But we don't sit in judgment in the sense of saying that this person is, more, is less righteous than we are. But we merely say that there is the code of law. Have they broken the code of the law? I think it's an important Thank you. point. Well, this is a magistrate, and uh, you might go up to him, and maybe he won't remember you too well in case you have to come before his court. <laughs> okay, brother, let's have it from you. It's nice to see you again. God no, bless you. Nice to see you, Dr. Gandalf. Um, uh, about the business of, of God's glory and this being uh, manifested by him, including uh, by him allowing evil, it's a very difficult problem, as you, as you said. Um, do, do, do you think we can, can see perhaps in Jesus' agony of the garden and on the cross how our choosing, being allowed to choose something that is less than the perfect good, that is to say, a good that separates us from God, evil, that this had the result of allowing God to show his glory and his love in every possible situation. I mean, in impossible and seemingly impossible situations. I mean, we, we, we see something about the love of God on the cross that we wouldn't otherwise have seen. If he hadn't allowed us to choose something less than the perfect good, we wouldn't have seen that. So it is, in fact, to the glory of God. Do you think of something in that? Well, you went over my head, but I think I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Bill. Anybody over on this side? Come on, fill them up. We, it works as well. Come on, you people. Come ahead, Bill. This uh, bit about um, God's uh, name being revealed paralleled by the new phenomena of signs and wonders. I mean, I accept the whole of your thesis on uh, the name and the word and so on. But... Wouldn't God's covenant that he made with Abraham when there was the smoking brazier and the blazing torch in Genesis 15 count as a sign of wonder? What about Theophanes? I mean, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, Stephen said. There's something special there. Um, there's the angels... Let me stop you, because okay. I'm afraid I'll forget if I don't. Right. You see, I accept what you're saying. Yeah. It's just that they're minimal. And uh, yeah, okay. let me say, let's talk about us here at Westminster Chapel. We are a word church. And giving, you know, there's those who go to see rather than hear. Those who come here come to hear rather than see. And I have said, to oversimplify, and at the risk of being misunderstood, that I think in some churches today, what you have is largely the spirit without the word but not entirely. They preach too. We have largely the word without the spirit, but not entirely. We, we see little things happen. So you can see some of that in the life of Abraham. That's all I would right. say, but okay. not in the extraordinary way. Now keep going. 
Well, I was, I was just going to say, I think there's actually more there than you were sort of suggesting is maybe there. Unless you put them in a different category. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels, Lot's wife. Right. Well, maybe, um, may, maybe we at Westminster Chapel have more than I thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Hello. Um, do you think when we uh, bless the Lord in our worship that we're taking his glory, is it his prerogative to bless us? You know, in the hymns of praise sometimes. When we say bless the Lord? Yeah. Oh, that's quite right to do. But shouldn't the word bless means to praise. We praise so, him, we bless him. Yes. But isn't he, taking his glory, isn't it his prerogative to be blessing us rather than us blessing him? Oh, but then the best way to have him bless you is to bless him. You see, uh, in the same way you cannot outgive the Lord, you can't outpraise him. That's what I and mean. And one of the greatest things you can ever discover is just, just try praying and do nothing but praising him. Just try it. But bless it's, his blessing and, is and he'll bless you more than ever. superior to us, isn't it? It's, it's a contradiction, isn't it? I don't see it, but maybe I would if I could hear you more clearly. I don't well, think if he's blessing us, his blessings yeah. are nothing comparable to our blessings, are they? What? His blessings are nothing comparable to, to our blessing him. I mean... Oh, no, we couldn't even come close to in, in reciprocating. Well, that's what I mean. So, therefore, aren't we taking his glory by doing... <laughs> no, we're just honoring him. And he wants us to do that. He, he inhabits our praise. Oh. I've never understood that, actually. All right. I still don't. Well, in a way, that's good, because uh, when Moses saw the burning bush, he wanted to get up close and to understand it, and God says, you can come only so close. So we're not going to understand everything. All right, thank you. All right, come dear. I think this might be the last question. Um, thinking about God as a jealous God, um, you've got the verse from Deuteronomy where it says... Um, his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. I'm sort of just thinking about the things we allow to go on in our country and also in other countries. And is God not withholding his anger from us because he must be absolutely horrified at what we allow to happen? You've touched a point that I think has a lot of merit. And it's scary, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Thank you. Make it quick. We'll take one last one. Uh, back to the blessings. Melchizedek, he blessed Abraham, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the author of Hebrews actually says, and without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater, so I would join her, I don't understand it. Okay, good, well let's leave it at that. I, I wouldn't want anybody to leave here saying they understand everything. <laughs> Man-centered theology is easily understood. With God-centered theology, we just stand back. And we don't grasp it all, but we stand back and worship. All right, next week, the more practical side where we apply what we've seen tonight, and we look at manifestations of God's glory. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love, the tender mercy of God the Father, the fellowship, the joy, the peace, the protection, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by the Holy Spirit be with us, abide with us until we meet again. Amen. <laughs>